All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we uh, do acknowledge that um, as we uh, see you and, and uh, behold um, the wonderful things that you have done, Lord, it fills our hearts with uh, with awe and, and uh, we pray um, that as we read your word this morning that you would cause our hearts to sing how great you are. Um, Lord, we pray that uh, our hearts would, uh, would be drawn more to love you um, and that our uh, steps would uh, would be drawn to follow you uh, wherever you go. In Christ's name, Amen. Uh, well, as Peter said, we're going to be uh, reading from Acts twenty, um, and I'm going to read the first sixteen verses. So please open in your Bibles to Acts chapter twenty. Twenty, starting in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us, when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if if possible, on the day of Pentecost. (coughs) I wonder if you've ever known anyone who has a clear plan for their life. Um, a, an idea of, of where they want to be in a year or two, in a year or two's time. Uh, when I was in uni, uh, I was uh, tutoring a kid through VCE, um, and his goal was to be a paramedic. Um, he he was uh, yeah, as I said, going through VCE, and he, he planned that once he'd finished high school, he was going to go to uni and become a paramedic. 
Um, and, and really a lot of his studies and the, the effort that he put into those and all those sorts of things were geared towards this goal. Um, it certainly wasn't the only thing that he had interested, he had interests in, but that was his goal and he worked hard to achieve it. Um, in these final chapters of Acts, Paul has a goal. Uh, we read about it last week uh, in Acts 19, verse 21. Luke writes that after Paul had spent a few years ministering in Ephesus, he resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after that, I will also see Rome. Uh, now, it's important to keep that verse in mind as we go through these final chapters of Acts, because that goal of going to Jerusalem and then taking the gospel to Rome, that shapes the, 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 the flow of what we're going to see in the next final chapters of Acts. Um, indeed, a lot of our passage this morning is dedicated specifically to Paul's journey to Jerusalem. It's kind of a, a travelogue of or an itinerary of where Paul goes on his way to Jerusalem. Um, And so to get a a good handle on what this passage is all about this morning, we need to ask, firstly ask a question, why Luke is so interested in this Paul going to Jerusalem? Uh, why did Paul? Why did Luke make such a big thing of it? He uh, he said that Paul was going to go to Jerusalem, and then over and over again, Paul says he's going to Jerusalem, <clears throat> and he devotes these chapters to Paul's journey to Jerusalem. It's kind of a, a strange thing to to put so much focus on. Um, uh, Steve mentioned last week that Paul's purpose in going to Jerusalem was to. Uh, deliver aid to the Christians there, but Luke really barely mentions that. That's not Luke's focus in these chapters. Instead, Luke wants us to see a parallel in the life of Jesus. I remember we've said a few times now that Luke and Acts were written as two volumes, one story in two parts. Uh, So Luke sometimes says things in Acts that are supposed to pick up on what he's said in the Gospel of Luke previously, and this is one of those things. Um, uh, Vicky just read us from uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Um, and then if you read the Gospel of Luke from then on until, uh, until the triumphal entry is also a travelogue of, Paul, of Jesus' journey into Jerusalem. Um, and so... When Luke makes such a big thing of Paul's journey to Jerusalem, we're supposed to remember Jesus' journey and see the parallels between Paul's life and Jesus' life. Paul is following in the footsteps of Jesus. Um, and once, you, once we have that in mind, we'll see this morning three specific ways in this passage that Paul is following Jesus. Paul is Christ-like. Or if you want to put it another way, we'll see three aspects of Jesus' life that we, like Paul, can follow. 
three aspects of Jesus' life that we can can follow. Uh, The first one is his path of suffering. Um, Now again, uh, this kind of flows straight out of that high-level structure type stuff that I was talking about before. Because as I said, Paul is journeying to Jerusalem just like Jesus, and just like Jesus, he knows he's going to suffer there. Um, And we can see that already in the first few verses of Acts 20. Uh, Paul uh, is just finished uh, in the the end of uh, chapter 19, he's finishing up in Ephesus and there's a riot um, about all his, his ministry that he's done there. Um, He survives that and he goes to Greece and then there there's a plot from the Jews um, uh, which kind of doesn't bode well if Paul's journeying to Jerusalem. They're they're plotting, conspiring to prevent him from getting to Jerusalem. What are they going to do if he does make it? So Paul knows that he's going to suffer when he gets to Jerusalem. Uh, And in fact, as we'll see over the next few weeks, he... um, he really explicitly makes that clear. Uh, in, act, in verse 22 of chapter 20, which Steve is going to preach from next week, uh, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And then in the next chapter, Paul is warned that he's going to get arrested when he goes to Jerusalem. And he replies, I'm, not, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Paul doesn't actually die in Jerusalem, but that is where his earthly freedom ends in the book of Acts. Once he gets arrested in Acts 21, Paul, in the book of Acts, Paul is never free again. Again, this is following Jesus' path of suffering. Um, Remember again, decades before, as we read in Luke chapter 9, Jesus told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then he said that following him means following that same path of suffering. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Um, as the chapter Luke chapter 9 goes on, Jesus puts flesh on those uh, commands of what it means to follow him and suffer. Following Jesus will cost you your pride. Um, Jesus uh, tells the disciples to become like children and then uh, when they are rejected in uh, the Samaritan city, uh, Jesus uh, rebukes them for wanting to curse the people that did that. They have to give up their pride to follow Jesus. Uh, Following Jesus will cost you your home and your comforts. Jesus told a wannabe disciple uh, that those who follow him, he and those who follow him, will have nowhere to lay his head. Following Jesus will cost you your family, those you love the most. Uh, Jesus told two people who wanted to farewell their mother and father that they wouldn't be worthy of him. Of course, ultimately, following Jesus might cost you your freedom and your life. It's what taking up your cross means. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it.
Make no mistake, following Jesus will cost you. Following Jesus will hurt. Following Jesus will be hard. If you don't want to follow Jesus in in his path of suffering, now is the time to leave. As Peter's reminded us uh, this morning, today is Palm Sunday. Uh, And we celebrate the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with crowds praising him and hailing him the king of the Jews. And it's, uh, I guess, easy to follow Jesus on Palm Sunday when the crowds are rejoicing and you get swept up in the excitement. But we are well past Palm Sunday, as it were. I don't think we're at Good Friday when uh, the death sentence falls. But we're definitely past Palm Sunday. We're somewhere in the middle of the week where the accusations are flying, the confrontations are crashing, the debates are heating up and in quiet corners and maybe even more in public discourse more and more, the whispers are multiplying. How do we get rid of this Jesus? What do we do about this movement that won't bow to cultural ideals and authorities how do we destroy these followers of Jesus brothers and sisters I hope you are willing and ready to follow Jesus on his path of suffering right to the very end (coughs) Uh, well back in chapter 20 of Acts we see that secondly Paul followed Jesus pattern of selflessness his pattern of selflessness. Uh, I think in light of all of what we've just read about Paul being constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, in light of the fact that he knew he was going to face persecution when he got there, and indeed the persecution that he'd already faced, I think it would probably be natural to expect Paul to be living it up in these, you know, final months of freedom. Um, Maybe Paul having a last night on the town is a bit of a ridiculous idea. Maybe you can't really see Paul being a bucket list kind of guy. But at the very least, I think it would be natural to expect Paul to be after a bit of me time, you know? Just some time to relax and and psych himself up for what's coming. Now, maybe he does a bit of that that we don't see. But as Luke tells it, Paul's focus is all on helping and encouraging other Christians. Um, This travelogue of Paul is all about getting around to a whole bunch of churches, at least one of which was a real piece of work, and encouraging them, plugging into them, pouring himself out to the very end. And again, that's not even mentioning Paul's purpose for this trip to Jerusalem which is to deliver aid funds and encouragement to the church the Christians in Jerusalem on behalf of the Gentile churches all of this then kind of reminds me I think of John chapter 13 verse 1 we read there that when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to be with the to to depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I love this verse. It's uh, such a beautiful insight into the heart of Christ. 
This is Jesus at the Last Supper, the night before his death. Uh, And John tells us that his focus is on how he can serve and bless and encourage his disciples. I think it's even more um, impactful when you remember that in a few hours all of these disciples are going to abandon him. Judas will betray him, Peter will disown him, and yet knowing all of that, we read again, Jesus loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's something to always remember. Uh, It should be an encouragement to you um, that if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are one of his children, one one of the Father's children, Jesus doesn't get distracted from loving his people. He doesn't get discouraged by our sin. Because if there was ever a time when Jesus would have been discouraged or distracted from loving his people, it would have been the night before his death, when he was, the night when he was going to pray that the cup would pass and that he was sweating blood in, in agonizing anticipation of what was going to happen. But he loved them to the end. Even in his darkest hour, his heart for us was love. How much more that he is now Now that he is glorified and reigning in heaven, Jesus really, truly cares. And Paul followed Jesus in that pattern of selflessness, just as we are called to as well. If this is how God loved us, we also ought to love one another. We also ought to love one another. What more can I say? None of us is above this reminder that the Christian life should never be about looking out for number one, which is, you know, easy to say but hard to do. Hard to remember even, I guess, in, in times like this when you, you're, you're facing something really hard, when you're, you're taking your cross up daily, when you've been uh, bullied and picked on and then you're told to work with the, some, with the person that hates you the most. Or when the kids are nagging you again and you're already running late for work. Or when the boss calls you in and gives you yet another job that you don't have time for. Or when you're old and tired and objectively it's time for someone else to take over. But you have to keep doing that same job year after year. How hard is it to put others first? It is hard to care for others around us. It is hard, but it's the way of Christ. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And like Paul, we should follow in his pattern of selflessness. Not looking out for ourselves, but for others. If we've been loved by God, if God himself has stepped down from his throne to take on flesh and die for us, then we should also look out for the good of those around us. That's what it means to follow his pattern of selflessness. I think it's worth mentioning as well that's not just true on an individual scale, but on a church scale as well, Um, particularly in a church like ours where we call ourselves an independent evangelical church. We need to uh, often remember that it's... There's no such thing as an independent evangelical church. Either you're not independent or you're not evangelical. 
because every gospel-believing church is part of a global network of churches, one body. Uh, We should make every effort then to encourage and strengthen other churches, just like Paul is doing in this chapter. As a church, it's it's really important for us to remember and support missionaries in, in other parts of the world and gospel-preaching churches across Gippsland, Australia, and indeed the whole world. Um, what does that look like? Well, maybe it means raising up people to do gospel work in other towns, uh, not giving just money to just missionaries that we support or that we send out from our church, but to other missionaries or to churches that might be struggling in other regions. Certainly, I think that means praying for missionaries and churches by name as much as possible in our prayer meetings and Sunday gatherings. And again, I think that's worth mentioning and uh, because, as, we've, as I've said, we're in more danger than most um, of seeing ourselves as an independent church, as, you know, the only church that matters um, and forgetting the needs of churches other than our own. Both on an individual and on a corporate scale, we're called to follow Christ's pattern of selflessness. Uh, His path of suffering, his pattern of selflessness, thirdly, Paul followed in sharing his promise of salvation. His promise of salvation. Uh, This is the point of the incident in Troas with Eutychus. Uh, This is supposed to be a bit of a funny story. You're, You're allowed to laugh. Uh, Luke meant this to be a humorous story, Paul droning on on all night and this kid Eutychus getting put to sleep by the soft candlelight of the, the upper room uh, and he sits in the window to get some fresh air and he falls asleep and he falls three stories uh, to his death. But Paul miraculously brought him back to life. Now, again, it's kind of a strange and slightly humorous story you know. Maybe a black humour sort of way, but um, nestled in this talk of Paul's ministry of encouragement and uh, especially the talk of Paul breaking bread, that is taking communion, sharing communion with the believers in Troas, uh, it becomes a real-life illustration of what the gospel means for us. Uh, Like the raising of Lazarus and really every other resurrection story, this passage reminds us that everyone who believes in Jesus will be raised from the dead in the end, raised to everlasting life just like Jesus himself. That is the promise of salvation. Uh, And as we read in this passage over and over again about Paul going to different places and, and encouraging them through his preaching ministry, I have no doubt that this is the sorts of things that Paul said to his people the message of the gospel. The gospel, again, is the good news, the good, encouraging, hope-filled, joy-inducing, strength-building news that Jesus died the death that we deserve to save us from from our sin and from the power of death. He, He rose from the dead to eternal life and we will, because of what he's done, This is the gospel, the good news, Jesus' promise of salvation. And Paul was utterly gripped by it, utterly committed to sharing Jesus' promise of salvation 
utterly convinced that it's the best thing that people could hear, he was so utterly gripped by it that he spent 12 hours preaching it to people who'd already heard it and believed it. And again, even when one of his listeners fell asleep and dropped out the window to his death, Paul kept right on preaching after he raised Eutychus to life, of course. And it's worth noting as well that the Christians in Troas were so gripped by Paul's message, by the message of the gospel, that they stayed up all night to hear it. These are people who probably had worked a full day, uh, more like a 12-hour day, probably. Uh, They would have fully expected to work right through the next day. And yet they forewent sleep all night to spend time with Paul to hear the message of the gospel and to take communion. Which I think is a, a challenging thought. Would I stay up all night to attend a worship service? Would I stay up all night preaching? Would you? But again, this is following the pattern of Jesus who saw his own ministry as about preaching the good news of salvation. He died and rose again to secure for us the promise of salvation and then sent his disciples saying, this is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Uh, So I hope you're gripped by this message like Paul. I hope you encourage others with this message since we're called to follow Jesus in proclaiming his promise of salvation. Each and every one of us has this calling in our day-to-day lives, seeking to convince non-Christians to believe the gospel message and especially in our Christian interactions and relationships, reminding and encouraging each other with the hope of the gospel. So that's what it means to follow Jesus. Enduring his path of suffering, emulating his pattern of of selflessness and sharing his promise of salvation. Again, Paul's life and ministry was Christ-like. He wasn't Christ, he wasn't perfect, but he was Christ-like. And I hope you desire to be Christ-like too. Hope you pray and strive to be Christ-like. It is a good thing to pray because that's exactly what the Father's will for your life is. It's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes us like Christ as we hear and believe the gospel, as we learn about and love Jesus more and more. He makes us more and more like Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, We all with unveiled face as we behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we should, so let's pray that we should know Jesus better and so be transformed to follow Jesus better from one degree of glory to another. Uh, Lord God, we've uh, just heard um, about uh, the love that Jesus has for us, the uh, selflessness, um, his commitment 
to the Father's will that he would submit himself to the cross. And his passion for the, for the gospel, the good news, the truth that saves. Now, Lord, we've heard how Paul followed Jesus by emulating all of that. And we pray that we would too. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the promise that the Holy Spirit transforms us from one degree of glory to another. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us your glory and transform us into the same image day by day. In Christ's name, amen.